Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this very special platform conversation with the playwright, Nick Deere, and the director, Danny Boyle, who together have created the National Theatre's new version of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, a story born in 1816, first published in 1818, and still going strong nearly 200 years later. Uh, Nick and Danny first had the idea, and we'll be talking about this, for the play way back in the early 1990s, some 20 years ago, when they were working together at Stratford for the RSC on an adaptation of The Last Days of Don Juan. Since then, Danny Boyle has had a very successful 15-year career making films, including, as we all know, Slumdog Millionaire, Train Spotting, and 127 Hours. And Nick Deere has written numerous plays, adaptations, and screenplays for stage or screen, including adaptations of Henry James, Dostoevsky, Jane Austen, and most relevantly, perhaps, Lord Byron. This production marks Danny Boyle's return to his theatrical roots. He's joked that his film work has been a 15-year distraction from his first love. And Frankenstein's success as a play over the last couple of weeks with critics and public alike has been quite astonishing, uh, matched only in impact by the Boris Karloff film of 1931. <laughs> Although there have been countless adaptations of Frankenstein before on stage, on screen, uh, in novels, stories, and poems, somehow tonight's two speakers have managed to do an extremely difficult thing, to breathe life into seemingly dead tissue uh, and to liberate, to liberate Frankenstein from the long shadow of Boris Karloff. So we'll be talking about all that for about half an hour, and then I'll hand it over to you, the audience, to ask any questions you might like. But can I start with Nick? Um, go way back to the, the early 1990s when you first had the idea of adapting Frankenstein. Why did you want to adapt? I mean, there have been over 100 films. Uh, there have been a lot of stage versions. Why do another adaptation of Frankenstein? Well, I'd never seen a stage version. Um, I know mean, there have been some. There haven't been that many in, in my adult lifetime, that's for sure. I'd certainly seen the films, the famous films, and what struck me when I read the book again, which for some unknown reason I did, was that there was a great central uh, dynamic in the middle of the book, which was the creature's story, which was never told in the films. In most of the films, the creature doesn't have a voice. He gets to grunt a bit and do bad things. And, and uh, actually, Mary Shelley's book is a novel of ideas. It stems very much from the French Revolution, the radical philosophy and politics of the day. And I thought it was sort of a missed opportunity in the movies that uh, I'd never seen what I thought was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein properly done. So, Danny, can you remember those early discussions way back when you first concocted the idea? Yeah, I think... I think uh, the, the, the first time, the first few goals Nick had at it was followed the convention of the novel, as obviously as his way into the novel, which was a series of letters, really, which is how it's described in the book. And, and it was clear that wasn't working. And then Nick came up with this extraordinary key that unlocked it, really, which it seemed so obvious, but that the story had never been told from the point of view of the creature. And it creates this wonderful dynamic at the beginning of the, the play which is that you do not participate through the eyes of the scientist, be he mad or not, however Hollywood or you know, myth tries to portray him, but that you see it from the point of view of the creature. And that creates, especially in theatre, this wonderful empathy that you can sense it from what it's like to be born. And it unlocks so many things, not least for us as parents, because we, we were both 
parents and becoming further parents, if that's the right expression. We were having more and more children, and, 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 it, and, 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 we, and that's why it took so long, because we had to wait until they'd grown up, really, until we, <laughs> until we were able to actually present it. And, now, and they come along and watch it, and it's wonderful to, yeah. to think about. You know, for us, it's a bit sentimental, actually, because, you know, to think about... You know that they've grown up in the time it's taken us to get around and staging. But this. it's interesting. I mean, of the great horror stories, of, if you can call it that, of the 19th century, Frankenstein's the only one where the creature gets a voice. You know, Dracula doesn't have a voice. Mr. Hyde doesn't have a voice. In M.R. James's ghost stories, the ghosts never have a voice. It's always people describing something, projecting onto them, rather than the thing actually having its own point of view, as it were, the experiment, chatting with the scientist. So it's unique in that respect, and, but nobody's ever really exploited that before. You know, the whole of the central volume, actually, of, of yeah, exactly. uh, the novel. Mary, Mary Shelley gives it to us on a plate, you know, the, the, the central 40 pages or so of the book is the creature telling us his story, what happened in his life, how he's arrived at this position. So... I've done nothing really but sort of serve back up the, you know, the, the volley that Mary Shelley knocked over the net. But what, seriously, why did it take so long to adapt? I'm really slow. <laughs> um, and it's, they don't uh, pay me very much. 20 years is quite something. Lots of drafts. <laughs> lots and lots And in of the drafts. meantime, Kenneth Branagh's film came out about four years after well, you first we, had the idea. Well, we shelved it at that point. Yes. And actually, we shelved it for about 10 years. <laughs> It's interesting the way, because as you said in the introduction, the movies have kind of stolen it really and overshadowed it, the, the book really. And I think that's one of the wonderful things that theatre can do because it is about the spoken word and about actors, is that they can grab that back again through Nick, you know, that they can get that central conceit back again that's clearly important to her. And she was clearly writing about the men in her life. It is a book that really doesn't feature a seriously important female creature. It's these men discussing giving birth to life, really. And clearly, that's her way. It's an extraordinary piece of writing on her behalf that she manages to encapsulate the three guys, I suppose, her husband, her eventual husband, Shelley, her lover and eventual husband, Shelley, Godwin, her father, and, uh, and Byron, you know, the accomplice and the famous knight, and, and, and for so much of her life with Shelley. Um, and she manages to write about them through th this, and, and, and write about the themes, really, of um, overweening ambition and loneliness yes. at the same time. One, and without one, any yeah. vanity on her part. And, and obviously, we, the, mo the modern age has tried to attach feminism to it. And I, I remember Nick tried that a couple of times, and it, you could feel that it didn't work, really. That it was imposing something on it, that she, she chose to write in a different way which is just about them, and then you would make your own judgments about them from that. You get a bit of that in the play, in the discussions with Elizabeth about a motherless yeah, child in, versus... But it's the, not in the novel. In the novel, right. I mean, a lot of adaptations of Frankenstein have actually sort of shoehorned in Mary Shelley herself as a substitute for Elizabeth, because Mary Shelley is fascinating and very modern in many of her opinions, whereas Elizabeth, the fiancé in the novel, is a very flat character, and we had to work pretty hard to give her any kind of... Yeah. uplift, if that's yeah. a word I can use in the circumstances. Yeah. And there's so many ideas in it. I mean, one thing I thought was great about uh, your, your version is you simultaneously deal with this issue of responsibility. You've got the scientific responsibility to the experiment, but also the dad's responsibility to his offspring. And by beginning the play, without giving it away, with that moment of, well, almost beginning it, the sort of postpartum moment where he takes one look at his experiment mm. and runs away, which actually is where Mary Shelley started, you know, when she first told well, the in story. In a sense, it's coincidence that, as Danny says, we, we had young children when we started looking at this, and they have now grown up as we've gone through it. it that is a coincidence, but possibly one of the reasons we kept coming back to it was that we kept identifying in the novel there are all these 
um, subtextual issues about what does it mean to be a good parent? What's the right thing for a parent to do? Um, uh, what, what happens if the parenting is inappropriate or, or, or simply poor? Those are the things that kept coming back to us, and, and they kind of uh, they have infiltrated this version quite a lot. I mean, there's definitely as you say, Danny, there's definitely autobiographical elements in it. I mean, you know, she dedicates it to William Godwin, and in fact, in the novel, though not in your adaptation, as it happens, there's a, a miscarriage of justice where the servant Justine gets hanged for something the creature has done. My son was doing. Um the book for his GCSEs about five years ago, and he came home and said, Dad, I've got to write an essay on the Justine subplot. What have you got to say about that? And I said, I've cut it. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a bit of, you know, political justice in there about, you know, uh, the law doesn't always get it right, which is very kind of Godwin. But also the fact that Mary Shelley had had her, uh, you know, her first baby died, uh, her second baby, William, wasn't well while she was writing the story. Uh, this idea of a motherless child, etc., etc. I mean, it, it clearly are autobiographical elements, aren't they? Even though they're worn lightly. The monstrous ego of these men that she was... It's extraordinary the way she portrays them. Because they were... I was reading that Shelley was so upset. Shelley thought that he could change sex at will. And so, in fact, I think with the child you mentioned, he, the stories that he tried to breastfeed it himself at one point. Um, and she's surrounded by these men of staggering ego who are, who, are, who are colliding with the scientific revolution, with the industrial revolution, which is beginning. The, 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 the frontiers of knowledge are clearly going to explode. And she writes about them in such a, a, a simple way. She finds such a simple way of describing them and creates a story that will outlive all of us, you know, is the great story. And much, will have a much greater lasting impact than any of their work, I think. Yeah, it's true. I mean, she, she seemed to want to, as it were, compete with the legacy of her parents, an inquiry concerning political justice by William Godwin and the vindication of the rights of women by Mary Wollstonecraft. Her book is much, much more famous than either of their two works. She, and she would never have figured that, because yes. that was the opposition. I mean, that's what she had to compete with, I think. Um, the, Danny, can I ask you, I mean, having had your 15 years in the film business, um, why did you want to make a play of it rather than a film? Well, it was, it's, we, 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 we did a play at the Oris sequel, The Last Days of Don Juan, which Nick adapted from the, it's the original manifestation of the Don Juan myth in Western literature. It's by a Spanish monk, Tirso de Molina. And Nick, Nick does these things which are called, he calls them adaptations, sometimes you call them adaptations and all. And he sort of, it's wonderful actually, because he sort of slips inside the play and honours it, but isn't slavish, you know, it's not kind of like, he, he makes it accessible and precious for a, for a modern audience. And I loved that, we had a wonderful time doing it. And we always wanted to follow it up and we started work. And as you said, the, 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 the big movie of Frankenstein's kind of scared everybody away from it really. And so we went away from it. But I thought it was a wonderful way to use theatre again. I'd always wanted to come back to the theatre. It's where I learned everything I know, really. One of the big advantages theatre gives you is actors. And the prospect, when Nick Heitner offered it, the prospect of doing this play on this stage, this extraordinary stage, which is just about actors, really. You put the actors there, and they just give it to you like that. Um, was irresistible. I was very nervous, of course, because I felt very rusty, because you learn a sort of different, slightly different set of skills did with you film. you yourself going for the close-up, you know? Well, I did this very weird thing, which is when they were acting, Nick noticed it, when they were acting in rehearsals, I would move towards them, which is, of course, what the camera does. As soon as you see a good bit of acting, the camera... And I'd find myself walking into the space with them. And, of course, he'd say, no, you have to sit down. You have to go over there. 
and I and I go back again. And of course, it's because in the theatre, it's the actor becomes the camera for you. They take the camera to you because you have to stay still as well. And that's what Nick said. You said you have to stay still because each member of your audience will have to as well. I, I think that it is. It's possible in the theatre to have a close-up by a combination of, of the, the technical facility we have with lighting and so on and, and how you use an actor and what an actor says. You know, Benedict or Johnny can stand here and every person in the theatre is looking at their face as if it was 40 feet high on the screen. The effect is actually the same. I think you can achieve the, 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 a theatrical close-up. Mm. The other thing about it, it makes us a human scale, actually, in a way. I think putting it on the stage more than you can, you can. They're, they're real human beings. Yes, it stops. It's the the it just. It's, it's ironic, given I'd spent so long in the film industry, that you can use the theatre to actually shrug off the terrible. But you very modestly said in, in one of the uh, articles about Frankenstein that um, you think that theatre is is more of an actor's and writer's medium and that film is more of a director's medium. Oh, totally. It's completely... Um, That's very you, modest of you. No, it's not. It's, it's, it's the truth that you have this... And I remembered it, actually, when it happened again on this. And I remembered it very vividly from working in the theatre before, which is that you are intensely important to the actors um, throughout rehearsal. And then as soon as they get in front of an audience, it doesn't matter how much they like you, <laughs> they kind of just push you away. And every time you give them a note, they say... Um, that's interesting. With respect, I, and you, because the, the dynamic is that dynamic, is that sense of communication. And when you have storytellers, and Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch are the most amazing natural storytellers, that, and you find their connection with a storyteller like Nick inhabiting a play like Frankenstein. And as a director, you're fortunate to be associated with it. You can show off with a couple of bits, but basically that dynamic is what it's about. It's about the actors being here. And, and what this space particularly is true yeah. for it. You know? Was it your idea that they should alternate the parts, the scientist and the creature? Yes, it was actually, because I, I, when I was a kid, the, the, I had this teacher at school who took me to, um, he took the load of us to Stratford to the RSC, and we saw the Richard II there, which was shared, um, Richard II and, and Bolingbroke, which is one of the other, which is one of the key plays you can use that technique with. Oh, yeah. um, and, that was the, and that production did that. that Richard it, Pascoe it, and Ian Richardson. And Ian Richardson. Yes, I remember. And it stopped in my mind. And of course, this is the absolute, is also a wonderful case for it. There's not that many plays you can do it with, but here you can share it. But are you, are you saying something about, or together, saying something about the creature and the scientist being two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I mean, I, I had always thought that the book had a lot of elements of a doppelganger story in it. It is a story about his alter ego. Victor, the scientist, does attempt, when he, when he comes to try and build a man, he's effectively trying to build one in his own image. Um, in the novel, he has to make it bigger than life-size because he hasn't got the instruments to work you know, in, in microsurgery. But um, I think that he... He is a narcissist, quite clearly, Victor, and when he tries to build something, he tries to build something as much like himself as possible. And what happened in rehearsal was that the two guys ended up coming, they, they were there, both there all the time. It's an enormous learn for them because one, one character or the other is in every scene of the play. So, so they attended playing, each other's rehearsals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, didn't, they were a bit cautious at first. They didn't know each other when we started, did they? Not really, no. And uh, uh, within a few days, though, they were, they were both there all the time, sitting, watching each other. So 
If you can say that um, an actor developing a character in rehearsal is a bit like a child growing up into, a, into an adult, well, they sort of grew up together. They sort of, they learnt in the same way as they went along. So I think they had a, I mean, you'd, you'd have to ask them whether it makes any difference to actually playing it, but certainly in terms of preparing it. Yeah, it, it, it gives a strange link between the two. They're yeah. sort of bonded, uh, the two of them, like two sides of the, or, you know, mirror images of one another. Uh, distorted very, mirror images. We've been very fortunate because you can imagine in other scenarios with other actors it might be an absolute nightmare. But they have, they've built on each other, they've borrowed from each other and they've inspired each other at different times as well. Yeah. And it's interesting of course because of course it's set at the time in which science, and it's, this is one of the things we want to emphasise with the production, was that it's set at the time where science gives man the right to confront his creator, who he's naturally before then taken for granted. But now he can create light himself. He no, he no longer has to be darkness. He can create his own light, and therefore he can become the equal, or apparently the equal of his creator. And that's what's wonderful about her story, about the myth that, of bringing uh, dead flesh to life, really, yeah. that you become the creator. So to bond them together equally with that, uh, yeah. at all turns and in all ways, yeah, no, is, is a wonderful no, is. dynamic for theatre. Um, Nick, I was going to ask you, I mean, that brings up some of the, you've said that you, 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 you think of Frankenstein as a novel of ideas rather than a spooky story. And it's absolutely crammed full of ideas. I mean, there's Mary Shelley, aged 16, 17, 18, when she's writing it, not quite digesting her sources sometimes. You know, there's Humphrey Davies' lectures on chemistry, there's the vitalism debate, there's Rousseau's Emile, uh, there's William Godwin, there's Mary Wollstonecraft. It's absolutely crammed. A Coleridge's The Ancient Mariner, Milton, Paradise Lost, Goethe. You know, and, and she's like a very, very bright sort of postgraduate student, not quite digesting the sources. How on, and, and you brilliantly, actually, particularly in the first half, manage in the De Lacy sequences to really put that over, that this is about ideas. And he's learning, he's learning about emotions, but he's also the creature, but he's also learning his way around Plutarch and Milton. And everyone's been terrified of that because it looks leaden. I mean, you know, someone's learning a seminar on Paradise Lost is not going to be much fun. <laughs> but you, you confront that head on, and I think that's a major achievement, actually. Thank you. I thought I was attempting to do the seven ages of man in four ages. That was my plan. Uh, in the novel, the creature is wandering in the woods and he finds a, a leather satchel with three books in it. Yeah. Plutarch, Goethe, and Rousseau. Oh, Rousseau. 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 I think it's that's Rousseau. Right. That's right. That's right. And he reads them and, this, and suddenly he is an educated, rational, enlightened um, <laughs> being. And he can't stop talking once he gets the hang of it. No. Um, but it, if, I mean, yes, it, there is a sense in which Mary Shelley, she is a bit like a sort of hyperactive sixth former who can't, you know, has got to read absolutely everything. But if one stopped and tried to put all that into a stage play, first of all, it would go on for a very long time, and secondly, it would be very, very turgid. Um, we always knew that we wanted to do something fairly crisp and sweet. You know, you're, those of you who are coming to see it tonight, you're out by half past nine, you're in the bar. Um, and uh, we, we never wanted to do the, what I refer to as the Dickensian epic version. There are some very good Dickensian epic plays have been in the past, but they do tend to go on for three and a half hours. And I didn't think that this one should be that. I thought it should, I thought the central dynamic was simply the creature and his creator, and that that would support uh, a sort of short and sweet play rather than yes. a long bang In the one. process, you, you, um, you cut out um, one of the most famous lines in the novel. I'm one of the most famous that. lines in the novel is the creature saying in his sepulchral voice, I will be with you on your wedding night <laughs> when, when they're in the Orkneys and yeah. the abortion's gone wrong. Yeah. That, I was waiting for that line. Instead, <laughs> you say, you may expect me again. 
Well, like, why we did you had, do that? Well, we had um, I'll Be With You on Your Wedding Night. It was in early drafts. And every, every time it came up, Danny kind of went like that. You know. <laughs> 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 Which is a bit of a giveaway when he does that. Um, <laughs> the problem with it was it announced to our audience exactly what was going to happen in the next scene but one. Um, if, he, if, if, you know, if you know there's going to be a, Nobody's said at this point there is going to be a wedding. The wedding's been postponed. We haven't heard anything about a wedding. If the creature says, I will be with you on your wedding night, well, then you might as well all go and have a cup of tea for 10 minutes whilst they do something else on stage, because that's the only thing you're going to wait for is the creature to be there on his wedding night. Right. So we wanted to, to give a line which suggested that he wasn't going to go away and leave everybody alone and let them live happily ever after. This is that's unlikely but not to tell you, the audience, exactly when you can expect to see him again. Mm. That's interesting. So it's sort of stagecraft rather than, uh, you know, that it gives the game away if he says, I'll be with you on your wedding night. There's you turn it into sort of whodunit. You know, well, when done it. Stagecraft <laughs> comes into things like this in a, in a lot of ways. Sometimes there's a bit of dialogue which is solely there to cover the fact that the actor's got to get changed into a different costume yeah. and has exactly... 14 seconds to do it, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. and, uh, and that needs a bit of dialogue to cover it. Yes. On that subject, um, the, the time scale in the, in the play is very clear that, you know, from the moment of birth to the end is a three-year cycle, and he spends a year with the DeLaces, you get the four seasons and all the rest of it. I've never understood why his scars don't get better. <laughs> in no adaptation of Frankenstein, do this, they always look as though he's just got off the slab, uh, you know, at the end, just like the... Surely he should be looking quite normal by the end, shouldn't he? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's one of the problems... With, that's one of the problems with inviting experts into the rehearsal room, for instance, is they always point out things like that. Well, no, I wondered. Or... No, there is, a, there is a very good reason, actually, which Nick covered. It's very important in the... It's very important in... I don't know how many of you have seen it, but we don't want to say anything that no. might spoil it for you, but it's very important that in the female that it's progressive, that he has learnt... And, he, and he, indeed, yeah. he is adamant that he will not make another one like that because it was clearly not a botched job, but it was like the prototype. Mm. And one of the things that astonishes uh, the creature is how much more improved the female is. And clearly her stitching would heal, however. It looks a lot better. No, 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 but it's interesting. Okay, yeah. very good. That's very good. <laughs> um, but can I just on that, I, there's, there's, a, there's a little bit in the novel that I've never quite understood, actually. Um, I want to read you something, because the... Um, and then what Nick said, okay, this is, uh, this is the young Frankenstein, because he's a young research student in the novel, with, uh, uh, taking his first glimpse of the creature, okay? His, his limbs were in proportion, and I'd selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful, great God, his yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness. But these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes. Now, I'm not sure whether the creature isn't supposed to be beautiful. It's a question of the tone of voice you read that passage in, that you could say that he's like, you know, Vitruvian man, you know, he's the perfect man, but there's something odd about his eyes. He's dead behind the eyes, and everyone picks up on that, which is why they're scared of him in yeah. conversation. I don't know, because actually, when they have their chat on Mont Blanc, your paraphrase of that is, uh, you know, it's a good, very good. My God, muscular coordination, hand and eye, excellent tissue, perfect balance, and the sutures have held. I failed to make it handsome, but I gave it strength and grace. So you're suggesting it's ugly. 
Do you see what I mean? And I don't know whether it's ugly or not. It's quite hard to make Johnny Lee Miller look ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and Benedict, no, I have to think? say. What do you think? I don't know how... I mean, he's built like a Chippendale, you know, this guy. He's big. I don't, I don't quite understand why he's eight foot. You know, if, if he's pieces of other human beings, why he comes out as eight foot in the novel, I've never understood that. And indeed, why he picks up a cloak that fits him. But, um, <laughs> but she wasn't that sort of writer, you know. She but, wasn't uh, that sort of writer. No, Her uh, plotting is not of the highest yeah, order. But it's it interesting, because if he was beautiful, then it makes the allegory even more profound, because he becomes ugly because people treat him as ugly. I think in this version, but when, we get, to, that, when we get to the end of the story, yeah. he has a, a, a curious beauty, mm. whichever one of the guys is playing him. But by the time we get to the end, he has a stature. Yeah, also, you, sim you sympathise with him despite what he does. As, you, as you'll see in the play, what he actually does, if you did that in a movie, for instance, which has, is not as complex uh, a, a, a form as theatre, you would never be able to rescue sympathy for him. Not really. Certainly not. Whereas in theatre, you can, I think. That's one of the wonderful things about it. And he does acquire a beauty because you, you attach yourself to his predicaments, really. Yeah. And one of the things we try to do is obviously... We talked about should he be scarred at all, but there are so many simple devices by which people have to react to him yeah. that he needs some marking. But the key thing for us, I think, was that he is different, and he is aware of his difference. Yeah. And Nick wrote a wonderful speech in the final scene where he is aware, and he, he asks, his, and they're beyond hope because they're lost in the Arctic together, but he simply pleads, why can I not be different? And I think that's a wonderful... Yes. Um, that's a wonderful um, note to strike in a modern adaptation of it. And, it. and it says that the creature, you have to find things in, for the creature that the, a modern audience will identify when there are not horror ticks, you know. And the actors have done that. They've found a kind of vocabulary which people recognise and, and see as humane. Yes. And is, it is part of us. Yes. And it's just a bit different. And yes. It's... And without giving the game away, your ending, Nick, is fantastic, I think. I mean, it's actually an improvement on Mary Shelley. I really think that. Because it, it's an embodiment. We won't, I can't give it away because people are about to go and see it. But it's an embodiment. The whole play leads towards this moment at the end, which it doesn't in the novel. I think the key to, mm. to what I've tried to do in, in the script and what we've jointly tried to put on the stage is to say that we never really saw this uh, as a story about what does it mean to be a monster. We see it as a story about what does it mean to be a human. It's actually it's looking back at us. It's using the story to look at you know, what, what we call ourselves sentient beings. What does that mean? What are we really? Is all I'm trying to do. So, as I say, it's a novel of ideas. It is, and you get these two key scenes, one on the Mer de Glace in the, uh, in the shadow of Mont Blanc, where he talks directly with his creator about, you know, I didn't ask to be born, which, you know, is a question children sometimes ask when they're in a really bad mood, you know? Or perhaps you haven't had the same experience. But, and then at the end, where there they are in the Arctic, there's nothing left. There's just the two of them, sort of, uh, you know, in the, in, in, with nobody else around in this wasteland. And it's this elemental thing of, you know, why did you reject me and so on. That comes over very, very strongly, I think. It's, uh, um, it really is. Can I ask Danny just something um, before we open it up? In the program, there's uh, some extracts from the director's scrapbook. You know? yeah. And we've got some pictures. We've got Mark Quinn's head. Yeah. You know? We've got some scars. We've got Fuselis painting The Nightmare. Yeah. We've got a steam train. And we've got that wonderful painting by Caspar David Friedrich of the wanderer uh, over the sea of clouds. Yes. You know, this sort of figure in a frock coat standing yeah. there in the Alps. Yeah. Um, were, did you use visual inspiration as well as the novel and the text by Nick? Oh, very much. I've, uh, but we... Uh, 
One of the things I always try to do, and it isn't, it isn't people can contribute to it, actors can contribute to it, and if you go around the dressing rooms, they have their own images up to inspire them each night, was you try to create a kind of visual vocabulary for the, for the play as well, to inspire people. I mean, you didn't mention is that there's also a picture of two Barcelona players yes. celebrating a goal together. But that was because their heads are kind of sort of almost like they've got one body and they're entwined together. So you look for these sources of visual inspiration everywhere. And if you're, if you're engaged in the play, you'll find what peaks out of your research is appropriate and organic somehow. You know, it's not just scattergun. You're not doing it, although you're looking everywhere, the, the stuff that emerges is stuff that's appropriate to the play somehow. So you look for inspiration like that, which is both um, appropriate to the period and also contemporary. So it's inspiration for the designers, obviously, but also to the actors? Well, the, Mark, the, the designers, Mark Tilsley, who designed the set, and, and Sutrat Lalab, who did the costumes, they'll also contribute to it. And, uh, and we're working together now on, like, the Olympics. We're, so we, and we same work together. Yeah, the same people, and we work together on, on films together as well. Well, so we try to, and, and you try to create a team approach to it, really. And to do a big play like this is a, as any director will tell you if they're being honest, is a huge team effort, you know. Mm. The thing about lead actors, I mean, great actors, and they are both uh, great actors, um, genuinely so. I'm not just saying that to big up the production because it's, it's sold out, so it's fine. <laughs> I, could say, I could say anything I liked about them, but actually they're both wonderful actors. And in this sense, it's like film. Because what happens, and I'd never really realised this before, what happens is that with a lead actor, they can deliver, they will deliver the play, they will, you know, the narrative of the play, they will deliver the character, they work, they work on it, it takes some time and they struggle, but they will deliver it, and they deliver something else as well, which is themselves, and some aspect of themselves. So they are different, uh, kind of infinitely so, and yet the same, really, because they're Nick's words and it's Mary's story, and... And there's so much of it is locked and fixed and has to be a certain way, and yet it's infinite, the differences between them as well. And that's the expression of their natural personality. That's what you get in great film acting as well. You know, you, they often, they're not saying lines even, you know, but they're just inhabiting something. So that's what you... And it was wonderful to work on, actually. It was extraordinary. The benefits uh, of, of seeing that, of seeing two actors work like that, uh, was tremendous and something that, oh, it's rare. I don't think we'll ever repeat it in our careers, but... Um, to be a part of that is wonderful, yeah. And whether, did, they, did they conform to your view of what, uh, what they might have been like as characters? Did you visualise them in your head and imagine the sort of actor that should play them? No, we had a very open mind about I mean, we wanted to go as young as possible because in the story, as you say, he's like a research student. He, he, he shouldn't be older than 30, in my opinion. And, and these two chaps can just about give us that. <laughs> and, uh, and most of the films, he's sort of... 45, the scientist, and, and you know, some old chap with long sideburns. Um, and uh, those, those things were important to me, but the actual the physicality of the casting is something that you know, we did a lot of uh, casting work together. And when, we, when we were agreed on what we had, we were delighted. And you just, it, just, it becomes part of the process. The process doesn't really have kind of punctuation marks in it. It's all these years seem to blend into one... I think the classic example of that is the first three pages of the play, actually, where, um, which are absolutely wonderful on the stage, where you've got the creature being born, uh, understanding the world around him, like an adult baby, sight, sound, touch, feel, and understanding emotions. It is so brilliant as a piece of mime. And it's two pages of your script, and you describe it completely uh, as we see it. But that must have developed a lot, almost like performance art. 
I've sensed while you were working on I have to tell you, I look back at my old drafts. The first page of my first draft hasn't changed in all the it's years. It's a fantastic it was always that. It's a fantastic it was always that, except one thing did change, which was actually a key to a lot of the way we subsequently approached it, was, and I'm, I'm not going to give away the story of what happens, but I had written, the creature is lying on a table, as in the movies. And one of the first things Danny said was, don't want that. I want him upright. Mm. Don't want him on the table. That's what we see in the film. So from... from Is it in a womb? Well, we won't go into that, but from page <laughs> one... Um, from page one, we knew we were, in a sense, in opposition to the classical iconography of the movies. Yeah. We were looking for a new way just to freshen it up. Yeah. And that started page one, line four. It's interesting, because, I mean, Mary Shelley wasn't that sort of writer, I don't think, and films have to be so literal about these things, that, you know, her description of the operation scene, she simply says, I gathered the instruments of life around me. Full stop. <laughs> That's it. And, uh, and, you know, it's like a whole reel of the Karloff is, you know, arc lights and uh, slabs and uh, it's alive, you know, all this sort of thing. Yeah. And, uh, and it's sort of taken on a life of its own, the operation scene. Yeah. And you're going back it's, to the fact... She didn't care about all that. It's, it's because, an allegory. Well, it's not that she doesn't say. care about it. It's, it is an allegory, but she can't answer the question, how does he do it? None of us can answer the question. You can put as much science into the story as you want to, but the central question, how do you bring a dead thing back to life? None of us can answer it. It's magic. The story at its core is a story about magic and fantasy, and I always perceived it as essentially a fairy tale, a fairy tale for grown-ups. Yeah. I don't think it's rooted in a, in a world of social realism. I think the, the, the heart of it is very, comes from a very particular period, particularly in science, but it's not really about what it's like to be a peasant living outside Ingolstadt in 1818. Yeah. Those things were not of, yeah. of great Can importance to me. You decided to set it in period. The Karloff version in 31 has this very strange Hollywood quality of being up to date and in the past, both at the same time. So it's in a castle, you go up the steps, the laboratory's at the top, but there's cars and 1930s suits, you know? It's this very odd Never Never Land where you don't quite know whether you're in the present or the past. You've very specifically set it around 1816 when the thing was first conceived, Industrial Revolution and all that. Was that were you ever tempted to mess around with the period? No. Um, because it seemed to me that to tell the story, as I thought, properly, it needed to be rooted in the scientific development of that moment, that you couldn't escape that. It had to come after the first experiments of, as Danny says, capturing and storing electricity in laden jars, which are about 1770s, 1780s, they're first doing that. And the, the very first public steam train ride is 1830. So it's somewhere it's between that, you know, that's when technology suddenly explodes, between 1770 and 1830. Mm. It has to be in that little yeah. node. Yeah. Take it out of that, and I think you lose a great deal of the sense of where Mary Shelley's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. She, just talking about, she, it, was, it, it, it came on the stage virtually immediately she'd written it, didn't it? There was like productions yeah. in... 1823, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, and she, she went to see it when she yeah. came back from Italy. That's right. She came back to see it and she was thrilled it was in the theatre. And she, I think she wrote a letter saying, she it's did. delightful and there's a, um, the yeah. scientist now has an assistant, which yeah. is this old... That's right. Which is, so it's not Hollywood to blame for the assistant, it's actually London yeah. theatre giving him an assistant. And it's very interesting, there's a theme that you have about uh, being unnamed... You know, that the creature is unnamed. Yeah. And she picks that up in her letter about yes. the play. She says, uh, on the programme, it said, the creature, question mark. 
yes. for the actor, yes. which is what they did with Karloff as well. And uh, as if the, there's no name, there's no, it just yes. doesn't exist as a person. Yeah. And, but, you know, a lot of the public thought its name was Frankenstein. And, and support, I mean, you, there's, no, there's no pictures, there's certainly no colour pictures that you, there are references to it, but the descriptions of the creature, the way they did the creature, he, he was blue. Yeah. yeah. Like Avatar. <laughs> Bizarrely, yeah. I read that. I was like, "Wow, that's yeah, so." Yeah. But he, he just grunts <laughs> at a very early stage. They took all the words away from the creature, so yes. he just—you know—the the cliches of all the plays. The, the plays have all been published, actually, uh, in, in in America, and I, I read them all. There were, I think. 12 versions in the 1820s, 12 versions, because intellectual property hadn't been invented yet, because it was just a free, yes, free for all. Yes, you get any money from it. Exactly. And in all of them, the creature breaks through the French windows, grunts, uses his hands a lot, and there's a comic rustic called Fritz, who comes to the front of the stage and tells you what's going on. And, 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 oh, and he always falls into a volcano. Yeah. Actually, you've got the comic rustics. In a way, <laughs> only in the autumn. Talking about the Karloff versions, I've just come up on the train from South East London, and at the end of my road, um, over the fish and chip shop, is a blue plaque that says, "Born on this site was William Henry Pratt, otherwise known as Boris Karloff." Presumably, in rehearsal, um, the play change, changes and evolves, and so on. In fact, we won't say it, but one of the key lines in the film, the most shocking line in the play, sorry, uh, isn't uh, in the play text as published. Uh, that's because the um, text has to go to the printers about a month before the yeah, end of rehearsal. Exactly, exactly. Um, so something happens during that show, month. And, yeah. and the, um, the line you're referring to only came, only came into the show about two days before the press night, as it happened. Um, that's something to look forward to. Um, mm. I would just say in response to that question, I try not to envisage anything, really, when I'm writing. I, I don't know what the actors are going to look like. I rarely write for known actors, very occasionally, but usually this writing something, you don't know who's going to play it. I certainly try not to think about what it's going to look like, because always a designer comes along and they surprise you. And the director and designer get together and it's not my particular skill. I don't, you know, I don't think I'm going to design the show. I think someone else is going to design it. So all I'm trying to do when I'm rewriting these scenes over and over again is get the dynamic of the scene working properly, if I can. I don't think about what it looks like, what the costumes will be like, what the actors will be like. That is actually irrelevant to me when I'm writing it. It becomes relevant when you're in rehearsal. And then, as Danny says, we're all part of a team, actually, and there's a lot of collaboration. And did you go to the rehearsals? Oh, sure. Right. They can't get rid of me. <laughs> no, so it's a genuine team effort. I mean, it evolves. But the, the, play the designer the was the there, time. the costume designer. Yeah. The, the lighting designer was in many of the rehearsals. Right. The music guys, Underworld, came to most of the rehearsals and sat in a corner. Yeah. Well, from, from, from my point of view, it's one of the huge differences between theatre and film. As I said, you're, you're, as a director, you're a visitor in the theatre. The, the, the actors own it until it concludes, really. Um, and then, obviously, Nick will be obviously involved to it, uh, whatever degree he wants in further productions of it. But whereas in, when you make a film, you, you own it and everybody else visits it, including the writer. That's just the way that film works. So it's a weird... Um, Yes, it's a weird divorce that you go it is, through. It's very difficult to walk away from. It becomes completely obsessional, particularly in this case where, because of the swapping around thing, we had 14 previews and two press nights, so it seemed to go on forever. <laughs> um, joyful, though, it was to see them all. But it, as I say, I was in, I was in rehearsals uh, most of the time, I, and I, used, I started dreaming about it terribly. And the worst one was I woke up and said to my wife, I was working in a cold sweat, I said... 
Danny Boyles decided that all Victor Frankenstein's entrances and exits should be by helicopter. And he said, it's, <laughs> and it's your job to get the helicopter sorted. <laughs> and I woke up and went, where the fuck am I going to get a helicopter from? So, yeah, walking away, I've spent most of the last couple of weeks lying on the couch, to be quite honest. It's, um, it's, it's, it takes it out of you. It's Particularly since thing. you'd lived with it for 20 years, in a way, off and on. Yeah, it keeps coming back to life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you are. I'd like to finish, if I might, with uh, a couple of quotes, one from you, Nick, and one from Mary Shelley. Uh, Nick uh, said the other day, uh, my hope is that if Mary Shelley popped into row G of the stalls, she'd recognize what she wrote, which is very nice, and I'm sure that she would. But also Mary Shelley herself, at the end of the preface to the 1831 edition of the novel, which was the sort of cut-down popular edition, and now, once again, I bid my hideous progeny go forth and prosper, which is exactly what it's done. Uh, thank you very much, Nick. Thank you very much, Danny. And thank you. Thank you.